most election cycles, you get to this point, there's still some news coverage. You get to the this time next week, you know, next Thursday evening, Friday into the weekend, Monday, Tuesday. And traditionally, you don't have, you know, the, the media is very skeptical about new stories. You know, if you were holding some big event, they might cover it if it, they're covering the campaign anyway. But they're not looking to break new things. It's why uh, I don't remember when precisely Comey's uh, uh, comment about the, you know, we're looking into the lab, Anthony Weiner's laptop four years ago came. Uh, but it seems like it was right up at the, you know, the tip of the election, like the going into that weekend, Monday, I don't know when it was. Um, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I guess it wasn't my campaign, so I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't burned into my psyche, but that, that was a very late breaking thing. And this is a campaign in which I think you could see late breaking things, partly because, the media is so conflicted and so in the mix that that they you, they might block something late or they might bring something in. And that sort of gives other media kind of carte blanche to say, well, they weren't covering it, so we're going to cover it. And and I think I think stories that don't have credibility have actually more uh, or maybe equal access to the media uh, in a situation like this where where you have partisan media, where you have media that wants Joe Biden to win. And I think you have media that wants Donald Trump to win. And and frankly, the media that wants Biden to win tends to be all the establishment meeting, almost uh, media, almost all the uh, press media, certainly associated press who just change, kind of changes words willy nilly now. <laughs> I think of this old Saturday Night Live skit, uh, President Ford would sometimes, you know, fall and he had kind of a trick knee and stuff. Of course, he was probably the best athlete of any <laughs> United States president ever. You know, he was like a he was a seriously good football player for Michigan. I think he was a lineman or something. But, you know, linemen are really important. You know, when those guys run for touchdowns, it's usually because some big guy blocked and knocked somebody out of the way. So, you know, anyway, he was a very good athlete. And um, and but he had a kind of a trick knee, as happens to sometimes good athletes. And he fell down and he had different things. So Chevy Chase, they had this this skit where they were going to normalize his behavior. You know, if he falls down, everybody, all the Secret Service fall down, you know, and it, it, it ends with, you know, Chevy Chase has got his arms like entwined in all the microphones. And then all the Secret Service people to make that look normal. They're all in front of the, you know, the podium with all the mics, digging their hands in and screwing it up. Anyway, um, that's that's the idea that we have to make things look normal. And I think our our press kind of has taken that to heart. And uh, it's it it happens on both sides. But again, it's almost all, you know, and, and the recent things with the Associated Press literally changing words and suggesting we you not use the word riot and different things. I mean, we're. we're really entering some weird political space. And and so I think anything could happen in this in this last little bit. Well, look at this Hunter Biden story. 
it's, uh, you know, and someone was saying, well, what is it exactly that, that he's done and so on? Well, in a sense, you know, average people, we're going to work, we're doing different things. We don't work in journalism. We're not paid to be an investigative journalist. It's, it's almost like, do your job. We, we want, you know, we need, it's not like everybody uh, can, can go out there and break, you know, find out what, what, what the emails say. And we, we need a media that wants to know and that wants to know the truth about their guy. Everybody, you know, almost everybody, they're going to like one guy better than the other, one gal better than the other. Okay, but still, you got to investigate. You got to do these things. And, and it, you know, I think everything that we've seen from the media has been that they, they're not interested in any story that doesn't feed their political narrative, their political narrative. And then you have the, the uh, you know, you have the Twitter and the social media and Facebook and so on that has behaved very badly. And, and certainly with a partisan left slant, I don't think there's any, you know, serious person who looks at it that that wouldn't agree with that. Last I so, heard, the New York Post was still not allowed to post on Twitter. I mean, that's actually an astounding dare thing. They run a story. How dare they run a negative story on Joe Biden? I mean, that's kind of it, the end of the day. That's where we are, is that the New York Post ran a story that no one has has found to be false, that they have some evidence for, that the vice president has not denied, that there's been no serious denial unless it happened today. Today, there was something. Uh, because, you know, there was another permutation on the story that, that we, they have a testifier. One of the partners in the scam came out and doubled down and gave information and and, and, te- and basically testimony saying that, yeah, I was in meetings where in Joe Biden was talking with Hunter Biden about what they were doing. So that's that's very direct. Now, the thing is, is that the Biden campaign came out with a direct uh, contradiction of that, though the wording is careful. So it may mean something slightly different. There is an apparent pretty strong negative statement on that now. And I don't know what it means. Partly because I know how people lie. I know how Clinton certainly lied. And he liked to be very precise that he said things just slightly funny so that you know that he's technically true if you know his definitions of the words, like is. Well, and things like, yeah. he, he, when he said he didn't have sex with that, that woman, it was in his kind of sick, twisted mind because he didn't define that as sex. Right, right. He had a very specific definition, and a lot of sex wasn't sex. There you go. A lot of is wasn't is. We are in uh, October. It must be the third week by now, uh, or we're cutting on the final week. We're we're beyond three weeks into October. Wow. It's October 23rd today as we're recording. We're talking about what you've written this week on thisiscommonsense.org. And this podcast is This Week in Common Sense, but I don't know what time of day it is, hardly. Boy, I'm, I'm out of it. <laughs> well, you're three hours behind anyway, so... So this is the third full week we're talking about. The that fourth full week is up ahead of us, which ends with Halloween and then uh, Election Day soon and then after. And scarier day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of scary... Let's jump right into Monday's uh, commentary, which, uh, great title. I don't think I came up with it. I think you did. But instead of kidnapping, 
And, you know, it, I think you just start out right. Because very few people are going to go, I don't know, kidnapping's pretty good. <laughs> but there was, you know, it, what appears to be a serious attempt to plan a kidnapping of the governor of Michigan. And, of course, the governor of Michigan, this particular script, uh, and and my take on it caused me to look into you know, a little deeper. And it is true that not only I was aware of this court case that basically said, okay, now it's been adjudicated all the way up. And no, you don't have the power to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I thought all along that Whitmer's, you know, there's the, the, the fact that her husband was able to do th some things that other people were forbidden from doing. And I don't even remember what they were but that's been a big story in Michigan that her husband, I don't know if it was that he, you know, did something crazy like take a boat out on the lake or. Well, he or, did do that at one point. You know, but but that's the, you know, well, then there were only certain boats you could take on it. If you did a speedboat that used gasoline somehow, that wasn't okay, but you could canoe on the lake. It, it, look, the governor of Michigan, there's, I think there's some good reason for people to be upset with her. And I think, you know, when people could look at it and they could say, well, she she did things that she didn't have the power to do. And that is true. And, of course, when people in power do things that they don't have the power to do, that's tyranny. And that is serious. And we have a right to rebel. But let's have lunch first. Let's have <laughs> lunch first before we rebel. Maybe just text, hey, could you you know, resign your position. Maybe she'll scoot out of the governor's mansion. Maybe go to court like people did and have it adjudicated and have it stopped. And, and you know, it's, it's amazing that we have a great tradition and, and our, the people who framed our constitution and our form of government, they believed in revolution. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing because we started out, unlike every other country in the world, we created our own government. We made a great break from the past in terms of not having a king and having all power kind of flow down. All the power flowed up. Now, it's amazing that you could screw as many things up as they screwed up when you're doing it from the bottom up and so on. It's just, look, human beings, we are good at screwing stuff up. We're also good at then trying again if we're given the freedom to try again. To me, democracy is not having an election. Democracy is having an election and realizing the next day there's going to be another election before too long. And, and so we, you know, this process is important. And I say that because I, I had uh, uh, some people who were attacking that we use the term Chinazi in here, and I thought our I thought our language was very light and colorful, and you know we basically say that uh, during one of the podcasts, I guess last week we had mentioned that you know we've kind of chosen the Chinazi style of lockdowns and and other things, and we've. We've erred much more on that side than on the side of other countries that did all kinds of things with their government, but didn't didn't abridge you know basic freedoms. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, other places, you know, it's not as if they just came in like like Chinazis uh, to their populations. Now they also had a certain level, I think, of trust between their governments and 
and the people that we lack. And, uh, and it is a serious problem that we lack it. But we can't just pretend <laughs> that we trust the government if we don't trust the government. And frankly, we're silly to pretend that they trust us when they've shown again and again and again and again that they don't. They lie to us when they think it serves their purpose. They don't trust us. They don't think we're valuable. When we have crisis, when we have 9-11, they tell us to go shopping. When we have this crisis, they basically just tell us to stay in our homes like scared rabbits and, uh, and wait for drop shipments of you know Uber Eats and uh, money and don't worry about anything. Oh, unless, of course, you know, you actually are working paycheck to paycheck and and maybe have a service related job in which you're going to have to keep working. But uh, but anyway, that's that's uh, I digress. In this piece, we we certainly pointed out what she has done that's wrong. But we also brought in that you then have an attorney general who decides she's going to continue to enforce things that a court has said, the highest court in her state has said, you cannot enforce. So this is, you know, almost everybody in America, certainly on the left, uh, remembers the, the clerk, the woman in Kentucky who wouldn't do the marriage license. And, you know, and that's, it's a serious problem when people who are, you know, working won't do their job. And you have to have a, you know, a, a chain of command and somebody has to take charge. But uh, this woman needs to go. And Michigan has a recall and they're using it. And this is, you know, the governor's overstepping. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what was in her heart, what was in her head. Uh, but we can always be generous with people's motives. We don't know. This, there's no possibility for generosity here. There is none. The court laid it out. She is the highest court officer in the, you know, legal person in the, in the state. This is outrageous. And, uh, and, but again, it's the beauty of America um, because we can do something about it and we can't do it everywhere. But we can in Michigan, and they're doing it. They're using direct Democratic checks that have been written into their Constitution. They have initiative, they have referendum, and they have recall. And here's where you need it. And, you know, uh, back a decade or so ago, I guess late 90s, you had the California recall of Gray Davis, the governor, very Democratic state, where the governor just got taken out, womb. And, and of course, deserved it in every way, shape, and form. Um, you know, years ago, the mayor in Miami was recalled. Ninety plus percent of the voters in the recall said recall him. Now, that's why you need a process like that, because when you've when that's the case, that person doesn't need to be in office for another year or two or three. Um, so anyway, wonderful that we have recall. And of course, you know, this this kind of macho flash of look the second amendment is a wonderful thing but it is only sullied when people act like that's some cool thing that we get to shoot off guns the revolutionary war the people who signed the declaration they weren't decimated 
they were much worse than decimated. Decimated is when you lose one out of every 10 people. If you look at the people who signed the Declaration of Independence after the war, they were devastated. So many of them were dead. They were penniless. Um, and it's it, the nature of war is a terrible thing. You don't want to shoot guns to settle problems. We were a better place because you don't do that or pick up a club or, and so, you know, the, these folks who claim to be for the second amendment, you, I think you have to have a certain reverence for what a weapon can do if, and, and serious people that I know that believe in the second amendment that I consider to be very good friends, they have a reverence for the second amendment and for the power that a weapon has. And they're serious about not letting that power get out of hand. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, it's terrible that that is, that that overshadows the story of Michigan, which is leader does something they can't do. We adjudicate it. We win. We, the people, and then some other person in public office, the AG decides to go ahead and I'm going to do what I know what the court has already said is wrong, which I have no power to do. And then we recall. That's why we've got to have these democratic processes, because we don't want to go to violence and revolution. Uh, they're, they're very fatiguing. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And if, if they can be avoided, let's do it. Our next script was the, I think, most read and discussed uh, of the week, I think because it's so fundamental. And, uh, and, and I, I have some friends who are sort of on the other side. And it's funny on this one, they're on the other side sentimentally, but they don't, they don't have many arguments for the other side. They're not comfortable being on the other side. They don't like the attack on public education. And, and maybe I, you know, I think about that. I think maybe, maybe I have to look at the words I use. Maybe, maybe there's a way to say it where it's not an attack, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not crying in my water, uh, about the attack because this is so out there. And what this is, is in San Diego, they found that if you group people by their skin color, and uh, we could say race, but I think it's, it's you know largely skin color, and uh, and and they they say okay, this race is getting this score on average, and this race is getting this score on average, and there's a discrepancy, or this many people of this race are scoring here, and this many of this, and they're they're not equal. And there's a disparity. And because of that, what do you do? How do you close the disparity? Well, in San Diego and increasingly all over, the way you close it is to grade less harshly. You muddy it. You What they're doing is they're not going to count stuff the whole semester. If you do good at the end, that's good enough. Which, of course, might cause people to say, why am I struggling at the beginning? I think I'm going to watch TV tonight. And then later in the semester, maybe. I mean, I don't know if that's the way everyone's affected. I guarantee you that if, if I know that and I'm a kid or an adult uh, and I'm in school, well, then I'm checking out the first, you know, first part of the school year. Anyway, 
the idea is you hide it. You pretend that's not important. You get rid of grades. You And how that helps anybody is never really, you know, it's, it's kind of good because now we're not looking down on anyone, although who is looking down on anyone? If someone, I, and I find this all the time, it's not that people don't look down on, on folks. There are times when someone doesn't know something and someone else will, how could you not know that? You're so, you're so dumb because you don't know something. And I've always thought that's so dumb because you don't know what you don't know. And there's a zillion, billion, zillion, million, quadrillion things to know and because you don't know it, and the second you know it, then you know it. So big deal. It's just the idea that somehow we have to hide intelligence as if some people have it and other people don't. And, it, and I'm not saying that some people aren't quicker to learn things or smarter or in all kinds of ways gifted in, in but that. It's open to, I mean, this is, why are we walking on eggshells with each other? It's like we're only here a short period of time. If you don't know something, let's tell you real quick. Let's say, hey, I didn't, I didn't get that. Tell me. It's, it's, we, as a society, we say that there are no stupid questions. And I always point out there are sometimes stupid answers. Uh, but there are no stupid questions. And we want... And and if someone doesn't know something, if someone scores badly on a test, the the opportunity is, well, then six weeks later, they can feel really good because they learned a bunch of stuff. I mean, this is not it's not impossible to teach people who don't know something to know it, to teach people who can't read to read, to teach people who aren't very good at arithmetic to be better. It, these are not impossible things. And we can do it instead, though. We're focused on some disparity, and we're debating whether to hide it or whether to close it. And hiding it is just the stupidest thing that anybody could ever come up with. But closing it is a close second, because the disparity is not the problem. The disparity is caused by some people having a, a lot of knowledge and others not having that knowledge. Well, the problem isn't the gap. The problem is that some people don't have the knowledge. You can get rid of the gap by just beating the knowledge out of the people who have it, kicking them out of school. That would solve the whole problem if the disparity is the problem. And people say, oh, that's so silly. It's not. If the disparity is the problem, then meet in the middle. Dumb down these people. Don't let them go to classes where teachers talk. You know, get take the Internet away from them. You know, we had we took our our uh, middle daughter out of uh, school when she was in like second grade because she loved math and she just she just knew math from the time she was like two or three. I don't know what it was. She just loved adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing. And and so she knew all the stuff and she was getting we were afraid she was getting bored. And we asked if she could, you know, if they could give her some extra problems, some more difficult things and other things. And they didn't want to do that because then she'd still be further ahead. Yeah. As as if it was a crime that she was going to learn something a little bit faster. Um, it's just, oh, it, I, I don't know how people think that way. And, of course, how you think you're helping 
this is this is people of color. Uh, but how you're helping any person who isn't getting the education they need by somehow, you know, muting the knowledge of that, by hiding that from everybody, by confusing that, and let's not grade too harshly. I mean, the truth is, what would be the best? It's Almost everybody knows the best thing would be have high standards. Who, who achieves things? People who are expected to achieve things. People who are not expected to achieve ever, anything hardly ever do. And uh, so anyway, this is this merit no more uh, is is the commentary at thisiscommonsense.org. And it's not like I'm saying anything that other people haven't said. Uh, but I think it's so important to to continue to bring these stories up because who's for them? The people who the most of the the you know blowback that comes the the opposition to this to the view I expressed is concerned that somehow we'll be anti-public education that we that will hurt these kids somehow that they need it and that's why they need public education even with the knowledge that we're talking about how public education is failing them miserably. And I don't think it's because these people have some secret desire to, to trick us into hurting these kids. They truly do think public education is the answer. They've been told that a zillion times. They believe it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what you can do except to continue to bring up these stories and to find ways to talk about them. Because the more we talk about them, I think the more people realize we cannot have a one size fits all. We're going to have the government tell us that, you know, we can't learn. That's how it, the truth is, if you get out of people's way, they will do it themselves. And I've thought for a long time with education that we want to just just drown everybody in it. But I think if the second that people had to like, you know, I really want that. Now you've got something. And and I think we, you know, we need to offer education, but we need to let people do it their way. And and the idea, I think, would I, I think if you did that, you would find more rigorous schools. I mean, the charter school movement is happening because parents are concerned that their kids aren't getting it and they want a more rigorous education. Um and and I why why wouldn't why wouldn't we give that to them? Instead, we're talking about doing all kinds of kind of touchy feely things that that don't don't educate anybody that hide problems. They seem like solutions made up by not really educators so much as by administrators to make them look good on some bureaucratic or journalistic ledger you know it doesn't seem i mean i don't think normal people would look at it and say that's a good way of doing it but it does look good as you know it's they've done something right they've they've done something to solve right. a problem but the problem is as you say also kind of artificial because it's conceived the wrong way the whole thing about disparities that's been blown out of the water by thomas soul and dozens of books by now i believe the last one of uh, his books uh he'll probably write i think is is discrimination and, and disparities or disparities and discrimination. It actually has the word disparities in the title and it just blows out of the water. All this discussion that disparities has something to do with discrimination. Every group is different. 
there is no group, any group you have, German, Irish, Turkish, they all perform differently in in every different subject. That is not in education, but also in, in careers, in how many kids they produce. It's just, in almost every conceivable way, there's no way of making us all equal because we're all so different. And the truth is, you know, we like ourselves, but I think I personally, I guess everybody's different. But uh, I think I'd really have trouble in this world if everybody was just like me. I kind of like a little difference here and there. Oh, it would be painful to be around the world of me, but I'm not painful to be around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know that I understood that, but I agree with it wholeheartedly. (laughs) Well, let's go to the the next one, which is uh, Wednesday's script which I thought would have been the the one most talked about just because it demonstrates maybe people are too afraid to talk about this one. Think so? This this is a funny one. It's totally funny, except if you step back just a little bit, it's like the most frightening thing, I think. I mean, I think you could use it to say our society is like one nanosecond from just extinction because we're so stupid. Um, this is a Babylon Bee in Facebook's bonnet. And I, I, hopefully everybody's heard about this, but Facebook clamped down. They clamped down um, because Babylon Bee, which is a satire site, it's a Christian, conservative oriented, but funny. And, and I think sometimes the, their, their stories in depth aren't maybe as good as some of the Onion stories in depth, but their headlines are just so funny that it's almost like, you know, the story, the truth is the story, even at the Onion or, or ba- uh, Babylon Bee, you know, usually the headline captures most of the punchline of the, right. of the piece anyway. So it's not like there's a, this long, hilarious story that's attached to a lot of these but they're just so good. So Maisie Hirono, who is a senator from Hawaii, is uh, actually most people would know her as the senator who told men to shut up and sit down or something uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh thing. So she got a lot of press for that. So she had asked this new nominee for the Supreme Court something goofy about uh, had she ever done a sexually inappropriate thing? And that led the Babylon Bee to have some fun with her, right? That's the whole deal. That's the setup. They mocked her as she was demanding that ACB, who uh, someone asked me something about ACB the other day, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I actually Googled it and looked it up at some cannabis-related stock. So (laughs) then I was really confused. And then finally I figured out what it was. But anyway, but that she demanded that ACB be weighed against a duck to see if she is a witch, playing off the Monty Python comedy and uh, ACB being Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, pretty funny, pretty funny. And, you know, for a lot of us, you'd immediately get the Monty Python reference. And yet, uh, no, it's, uh, it's censored by Facebook as hate speech, I guess. Incitement to violence. Oh, incitement to violence. (laughs) 
I guess the idea is that somebody is going to set up a tribunal, you know, the Spanish Inquisition is that come in on the move. You never expect him, you know. And, uh, and, uh, they're afraid that, that Mazzy may go off and do something she shouldn't do. No, I don't think so. Uh, anyway, but now Facebook after, after the commentary airs and the masses, you know, of America rise up, uh, Facebook has apologized now, but you know, what does this say that, that it's like we have no judgment. It, it, it reminds me of these stories about the little girl who brings a butter knife in her lunch bag to cut up her apple and is suspended for bringing a knife to school or the kid who bites his sandwich into a pistol and the shape of a pistol somehow and is in trouble um, or, you know, they call the police or something and the kid's six or eight or these are the types of things that and then and then the excuse is, well, the rules are the rule. There's zero tolerance or something. We've gone insane. I mean, we you cannot be that ignorant as an adult or that willing to follow the rules we don't this america we don't follow stupid rules i'm just i'm sorry that no one clued you in on that that's kind of the unspoken thing i saw this article about taiwan where they were taking refugees from hong kong and uh and there was something about well is this an official policy and are you doing it you know and they're worried about all the diplomatic things and the and the guy in taiwan says do it and keep your mouth shut <laughs> and i thought is that a philosophy that we can we can embrace and and thrive with or what anyway well here in america it's like that it's we don't follow any laws that are really stupid and uh, anyway, oh, it's but think about think about how does how does judgment get to the point where where you clamp down on something like that that days later you're apologizing for? It's you know part of it is being too quick to clamp down on anything because somehow we can't see it or we can't hear it and. You know, again, we can't be treated like, you know, children or we start to become like children. I mean, the expectations are really important. And if we're expected to never make any decision ever and never hear anything that that unsettles us in any way, you know, I'm I'm pretty afraid of what the future looks like. And and if you know, and if we're going into that future, we're going to need the Babylon Bee. Let me tell you. Yeah, well, it might be our only respite, uh, just to, at least to laugh at our servitude. Thursdays was about another crazy policy, which was about regulation and regulation regarding COVID and the current uh, crisis, or non-crisis, or quasi-crisis, whatever that is. Well, it's a crisis, but it's not the crisis. I think that we're that we're constantly told it is, um, and I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting that I, I saw something the other day uh, this week uh, about that the the percentage, of, you know, the death rate this year is not really up. That we've had two hundred thousand plus uh, COVID deaths, 
but that our national death rate is not up over last year. That's actually very interesting because earlier in the year, like right in March and April, they were worried because they saw a spike in deaths overall. And they didn't know how to deal with that. Well, if overall now it isn't the same, that means that we've redistributed deaths, is that there were deaths early on that haven't borne out the rest of the time. So some people died early probably this year, but that's it. Yes. Because there yes. was that bulge in, in just general deaths expected over the year, or, you know, month to month. And then there was that bulge in March and April. Uh, right. And it, it concerned me because I didn't, because none of us really knew where they were all happening because it wasn't all happening in the COVID deaths at that time. So that's right. very interesting. And so we were okay. worried, where was how, how was it being shuffled? Well, one of the shuffling could be because so many of the hospitals were shut down and people weren't getting the treatment they normally would have gotten. Right, right. So they're dying of other things. Yeah. Because here it's called for a new normalcy. Basically, the point I'm trying to make here... Uh, Ronald Bailey uh, talks about uh, this testing and, you know, all kinds of arguments back and forth in testing. But the key is to make it to where people can get tested all the time. If you're if you want to be able to move around to do more things, the more knowledge you have, the more you're able to do that. And uh, the problem is the FDA has been slow to allow in-home, totally in-home tests. There are, they're now testing sometimes in home, but then it has to go somewhere else. There's all kinds of different variations of what's allowed and not allowed. And, and frankly, I'm no expert on it all. I haven't studied regulation in this field forever. But the point I make is that this is not, oh, we found this crazy thing. Governments regulating healthcare and and regulating drugs and medical devices and getting them on the market is a slow, cumbersome, obnoxious bureaucratic process because just about everything government does, even things governments are really good at, like fighting a war, is done in a fairly bureaucratic process, and and we we see. Again and again, especially in this sort of situation where something is new, we didn't know all about it, and you see that entrepreneurship is what's quick and innovative and often wrong. But because lots of people can go out there and be entrepreneurs, five of them are wrong, but one of them's right, and boom, we got it, and it's quick. And the others go, well, what the heck? I didn't get that one, but I'll get the next one. And the truth is, if they're thinking that way, they may be wrong a lot. But if you're an entrepreneur who's constantly coming up with ideas that are wrong, sooner or later, you're going to come up with one that's right. That's the it's it's like the speech that we've talked about, where if you have robust speech, you don't have to worry that somebody said something that wasn't right. You start policing everything somebody says that hasn't already been deemed to be right by proper authorities and you've got no communication and you've got nobody who's motivated and incentivized to talk about it and come to the solutions. And so this piece is not about, oh, we found something and it's inside this one part of the government. This is just common sense. And that's why we call this is common sense 
common sense. Uh, this is commonsense.org. Because this happens again and again, and we have to recognize it and stop allowing the government to control so much of our lives. And you see it in a pandemic. You see it, you know, think about uh, how how marijuana is legal in a lot of places in this country now, not because they convince people that you should legalize it, but because people got so tired of people they love dying in immense pain and suffering. And when they realized, even though they didn't necessarily think marijuana was a great thing, when they realized that, damn it, I love this person and they're in horrible pain and you jerks won't let them use the one thing. What is going to hurt them? They're dying. And, and so that broke the, you know, kind of broke that whole resistance. And but do we have to do that on every single thing? Freedom is just a lot easier uh, way to go about it. And I, I, uh, I saw the quote, Oh, uh, by, uh, uh, Scott Allen, Scott Adams, Scott Adams. You mean, uh, you mean the one I put up for this week? Yes, on the website. And uh, and I've been so busy that I just have not. You know, I mean, usually I check every day what's you know what's going up on the, on my website, but I have not seen those. That was such a wonderful uh, quote that that he had up about about this exact sort of thing. And it does remind me also about how how freedom is like the truth, because actually when it gets down to it, freedom is easier. Just as telling the truth is easier, because lying means you have to remember all your stupid lies. That's actually kind of what regulation is like. Regulation is having to remember all your lies, uh, which is just <laughs> <laughs> well. And 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 what he was pointing out was, is that we would give up a lot for freedom because without freedom, you want it. What good is life? What fun is living if you're not free to do it and and to it to its fullest? And and it it has repercussions in everything else. You know, you you don't you don't have abundance unless you have the incentive for people to work hard. And if they're not free to keep what they make, they you know. I remember years ago seeing a, a documentary on the Soviet Union. And they pulled out something like uh, they allowed people to use like 1% or 3% of their land. This is after a whole bunch of people had starved to death when they collectivized everything. And they started allowing people to use a little bit of their land to produce for themselves. And I think it was 3%. And that 3% ended up providing 27% of the food in the country. And so you had 3% producing 27% and 97% producing, what, 73%. And so you get a sense of what production is all about. And, it, you know, you see it in, you see it all the time. If incentives are pointed the right way, people do the right things. And if you point the incentives the wrong way, people are good and they'll kind of do the right thing for about 45 minutes and then you know that it's like wait a second uh, that doesn't that doesn't work anymore so yep did you see friday's uh today's thought i had a long one from herbert i haven't had a thought yet today i mean it's it's been a busy day no i I did not see it it's a long one from herbert spencer it's about the subject of this uh, column though uh, this commentary 
it's the it's the one from Herbert Spencer where he says, unlike private enterprise, which quickly modifies its actions to meet emergencies, and he gives some examples. The law-made instrumentality lumbers on under all varieties of circumstances at its habitual rate. By its very nature, it is fitted only for average requirements and inevitably fails under unusual requirements. That's one of uh, Spencer's uh, essays uh, from over-legislation, written quite a long time ago. So It's very Spencerian, those big words and those, that, that, that kind of language. He, he was not known for... Uh, Pithiness, exactly, but nevertheless. Uh... No, he's uh, he's on the mark, though. Uh, Friday's script was about term limits. You know, I've started to think a little bit about term limits. They seem to be pretty good. No, uh, <laughs> as as uh, regular listeners will know, I love term limits in every way, shape, and form. And I think one of the neatest things is how unifying term limits are. In this day and age, when almost every issue, a lot of 60-40 issues are not 60-40 anymore. They're 52-48. You got so much division. It seems like, and I know this of my experience on social media, you start talking about term limits, and all of a sudden the liberal and the conservative are on the same page. It brings the United States together. Now, it's very tough to get them because Congress doesn't want to pass them. And frankly, state legislators don't like them very much either. It's kind of like <laughs> they, they're they whistling past the graveyard a little bit. And, uh, and so it's tough. And what the term limit movement has done is to push for states to start to make a call to get two-thirds of the states, 34 can call for a convention, make it a single issue, term limits, set the term, send it out to the states. I think it would be ratified in a New York minute. But it's very tough to get there. And it's also probably likely that before you get to 34 states, Congress realizes maybe we should just pass out a constitutional amendment. Of course, the problem is that likely they're likely to pass out a constitutional amendment. I remember when... Uh, one of the guys, I can't think of his name now, but he's from Minnesota, Friedel, I think it was, uh, Frenzel. Oh, I can't think of his name. I'm so sorry. Uh, Bill, I think, was his first name, though. But he was in for a long time. And his idea, he wanted term limits. He's a big, long-time term limit supporter. He thought that House term limits should be 18 years, the Senate 18 years. So you could serve 36 years in, you know, served in both. And that'd be a nice term limit. <laughs> Anyway, they, they don't always get it so much, but we spoke specifically about two guys who do get it a little bit better. Uh, Ed Rendell, who was governor uh, of Pennsylvania, kind of an important state these days, and U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, who, when I worked for U.S. term limits, he was running for Congress in Allentown, Bethlehem area. He had a restaurant, and I can remember he must have called me a zillion times. And it was like he called, well, when can you come up and we do it? Well, let me see my schedule. So he was like, when, when, when? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? What are you doing? I mean, he, because he realized it was a hot issue, and he wanted to, he'd already pledged he was only going to serve, I think he was only going to serve eight years. And so our pledge was six years. It wasn't a self-limit. 
but it was just supporting six years. And he said, well, geez, that's not the exactly the same. He was at six years in no time. He was a business guy. He's not, you know, I, I just, I really appreciated his kind of attitude about things. It was all business. And, and it's so rare in politics because most of these guys, you know, you're, you're wondering where the shrink is and why their mother must have abused them or something. I mean, the politicians I have met by and large are the biggest prima donna, narcissistic, just gobs of goo that you could possibly imagine. And uh, Pat Toomey, uh, sharp guy, uh, a doer, you know, very, uh, very good guy. Anyway, he uh, he stepped down. He's not running. He, he's not up until 2022. But so both of them are no longer, you know, kind of campaigning for things. They're campaigning for term limits as a Republican and a Democrat. And something else the term limit movement has been featuring is the fact that you have Donald Trump saying things about term limits and how important they are and that he's not a career politician. And you have Mr. Obama, the last president, and they don't always agree on everything, but Mr. Obama has not, not only did he come out and start talking about how, when he took, did the tour in Africa, he made uh, several comments about term limits and how they were important. And that was, that was important because that's a continent in which the public likes term limits and the rulers give it to them and then take it away whenever they feel like it. And it's a, it's a big problem. So it was a really important thing that, that he did that. Um, and it's the kind of thing he didn't have to do. It's not like there was some, you know, mob at home saying you better do this or we're going to get you. Um, so, uh, that was really good. He then also made comments about toward the end of his term that, uh, that he supported congressional term limits as well and, and term limits more fully, uh, and, and talked about how they were good for him. So it's, it's interesting there is even I noticed after uh, term limits had failed the second time in the Congress, it won all over the country, but Congress couldn't quite get it done. And of course, at that point, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the major media was against term limits and still really is. But all of a sudden you start to see more stories about incumbency and the problems with incumbency. It was like they felt like now it's safe to tell the people what a problem incumbency is because those guys who are trying to get term limits, they, I think that's, I think that storm has passed. So now, now that you won't do stuff we don't like with the information, we'll give it to you. And I should have, you know, I should have realized that that's only going to get worse because now I think constantly our media only gives us the information they think we'll do what they like with and not the other information. But, we have a an issue here that is so popular in every demographic group except career politicians. And if if we can't get term limits, we do not have a republic in which citizens have any decent measure of control whatsoever, because it is the support is ubiquitous throughout the country and. The only thing stopping it is that we don't have a representative system. The other thing about this script that I so enjoyed was getting to say that Americans are coming together right now over term limits. 
because I I just love any of this. It's a takeoff on Come Together right now over me. And uh, and it's just any time, you know, you probably didn't think that because a lot of times I'm 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 trying to get you to tell me that it's okay for me to put a link into some song that I've gotten. You know, I've I've alluded to the song in the text, and I'm sure that everybody who's reading is going, "Please, Paul, stop, stop trying to push your music on me." But uh, but anyway, I didn't do that, but I did put the line in, and and so just for me personally. It was extremely satisfying. And that was a late in the editorial process change as well, if I remember right. Yes, it that was. was. the last it thing was. you did on Thursday, I think. Yes. So, so there you are. Okay. Um, by the way, I think maybe you should tell everybody what you think the, what you your preferred term limits are, the terms for co- uh, Congress. The Senate, you think that how, much, how many uh, terms? Two terms, for the, two terms for the Senate, which would be 12 years because they have six-year terms. And three terms for the House, which would be six years because they have two-year terms. And the way I would look at it is if your term length is two years, four years, um, then, you know, if, if it's four years, six years, it would be two terms. If it's three, two years, then it would be three terms. I, I like the idea of – and some term limit people don't. There are term limit kind of people who say – one term. It's no good after one term. I like the idea of someone running for a term, having some incentive to get reelected, possibly a second time if that doesn't make it more than a decade, because I think more than a decade in the same office is just too long. Uh, so, so if it's three years, if it's four years, well, I don't want it to be three terms. It should be two. If it's six years in the Senate, it should be two terms. And uh, and even that is is kind of long. The truth is, the Senate term at the time may have made a little bit more sense. I don't like the six year term now. I think it's too long. And some people have you know will always say we need longer terms length because otherwise they raise money the whole time. And so then you give someone who has a two year term a four year term, and instead of raising money for two years, they raise money for four years. So it's all the reasons to kind of lengthen terms. I, I don't find very compelling. And, you know, who was it? Was it John Adams who said that uh, where annual elections end, tyranny begins? And I like Congress always facing an election. The only good politician is a scared politician. And the, the only reason that elections don't help us get a better, you know, output from Congress is because most of them, most of them don't have anything to fear. They don't have any real competition. They've got these gigantic districts. They've got the most money, and they stomp on the competition. Except in a few, you know, uh, out, out of you know 435 house districts, you know, 20 are competitive, 30. That's just pitiful. So that's a that's a big problem. But anyway, those would be the three three terms in the House, two in the Senate, um, and and that's what most of the states, you know, they went. Some states, uh, you might have a Senate that has two terms, four years, eight years total. A uh, House that has two years, maybe they have four terms, eight years total. That's what that's what uh, uh, Florida has. But those are those are the kind of links. And I like I like the three terms uh, in the House, two terms in the Senate. Okay, very good. We just need to clarify those little things every now and then. It's good because you know you can talk and talk about it and and. 
you know, some people out there are thinking, well, what? what's the number? Yeah, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around your uh, theory about the, the terms and term limits for the for the uh, Supreme Court. So, so well, and and you would think I like term limits. I like term limits for everything. But um, but the funny thing about the Supreme Court is, and I'm not sure what the right length is. Maybe 12 years. Maybe it's it could be even longer because it's it's a different job. But the only reason I like term limits for the Supreme Court is because I don't want it's just too much power. And I don't like the way the political process is, you know, they're going to start putting younger and younger people and trying to take as much time. And uh, but so for those reasons, I like it at the Supreme Court level. Overall, our lifetime tenure for federal judges is the right way to go. It seems to me that it has worked out. It has created an independent judiciary that is, you know, has all kinds of problems, but it works better than any other branch of government. The independence that the federal courts have does not exist at the states. Uh, every state court, I, I never want to be in state court. They're, they're crooked. I don't know how else to say it. They're all political. They're goalies for the establishment. Uh, every state I've worked in, uh, I just find the state courts reprehensible, crooked, political, rotten. And the federal courts, I've lost all kinds of, I mean, I've been in federal court where they said you're guilty and I go to jail. I've, you know, because I resisted the draft. I, you know, I, the federal courts have not always been my best friend. I'm just saying they have a level of independence. They make all kinds of mistakes. We're not, we're not looking for perfection or at least expecting it. But, but the lifetime tenure has created that dynamic. And I now, I've looked at a lot of different plans about state court reform like the Missouri plan that they have now where the bar associations have like all kinds of a private organization uh, made up of lawyers has all kinds of, you know, kind of official roles and picking in, in Missouri, for instance, they give the, the uh, uh, governor five choices. The bar association does. I wrote a column 15, 20 years ago saying, yeah, let's, let's do it this way. One year, the Bar Association, the next year, the Rolla, you know, barbershop quartet will pick a judge the next year. I mean, why should the Bar Association be deciding who all our judges are? That's outrageous. I mean, it's a private institution with just tremendous power written into the law, kind of. So I've been looking for different reform. And I just as I as I get older and I realize I don't have much time left, uh, I decide why don't we just do what the federal judiciary has been doing and let's give lifetime tenure. And, and maybe some of the, maybe it's different. Maybe you, uh, you know, maybe some of the, there's too many circuit court judge justices or something. I don't know, but I think that's the direction to move in because it's about the only thing 200 some odd years after, you know, the constitution's written, that seems to be working. The other thing that we need to do is to protect the judiciary from the Congress in the sense that this court packing, this is, you know, uh, you're talk about destroying norms. You're you, this court packing risks taking an independent judiciary and destroying it completely. And if that happens, it, it was just a slippery slope. And what should happen instead, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, yes. is let's reform it and let's put it in the Constitution so that when they say we want to change the number of justices, you say, OK, that takes a constitutional amendment. Now you're going to have to talk to the public 
instead of just your political hacks in D.C. That was Paul Jacob, and this has been This Week in Common Sense, his weekend podcast covering the stories that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman and Workman.com. That's Workman with an I, not an O. And this podcast is available, yes, it's available on a number of podcatchers and on SoundCloud and on the website, thisiscommonsense.org.